Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. This episode of the Human Experience Podcast is brought to you by Fine Mindfulness. Mindfulness these days is huge. Mass media is starting to understand the benefits of taking time to pause and reflect. Have you ever been interested in mindfulness and meditation? Have you ever wanted to create a practice, but you just fall off track? Well, this is where Fine Mindfulness comes in. They offer a community that will help you create those powerful lasting habits that keep you training your mind. Whether you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or a college student running a startup, Find Mindfulness can help you. Find Mindfulness is a 30-day program. How often are you looking at your cell phone? Just ask yourself how often you look at your cell phone and then tell yourself that you need to take this course. Mention the human experience. Go and sign up right now at www.findmindfulness.com. What's up, people? I cannot explain adequately with words how profound and utterly crushing this episode was to do. It's such a powerful, gripping episode. After you hear it, you will understand why it was so powerful and gripping. There's so much information that is compacted into this episode, and it reminds me that I have one of the most amazing jobs on the planet. I get to speak to some of the most talented, brightest, intelligent individuals, and then deliver that information to your beautiful smiling faces. So please make sure that you check out Kingsley's work, kingsleydentist.com. Pick up a copy of his book, A Struggle for Your Mind. That's where you'll find most of the information that we talked about in this episode. And get to our main site, become a member, it's $5. It helps us keep going. It's not a get rich thing. We're not planning to get rich on $5 a month. Yeah, please also get to our Facebook page and invite your friends to like our Facebook page. There is a contest in the works that I'm putting together and you'll notice, you'll see that for our our loyal listeners and our supporters. And we really just want to give back even more to you guys that have been listening and supporting our show so follow us on twitter at the human xp subscribe to our youtube channel and of course facebook thank you guys so much for listening
the human experience is facilitating your escape from the matrix as we speak to my guest, Kingsley Dennis. Kingsley, my good sir, welcome to HXP. Xavier, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Kingsley, you seem to have such an interesting life. You've moved around to a couple different countries. You've taken some odd jobs just so you could pursue your writing career. I mean, what? how did you go through that? Walk us through that. Well, where shall I begin? Um, I, I don't know whether I've been blessed or cursed, but... I, I had the, from a very early age, the, the notion that I wanted to, to write about things and to learn about the world. So naturally, at the first opportunity after university, I decided to, to go and wander the world. But in order to do so, I had to pay my way. So I decided to, be, um, to take up teaching in the different countries. And I took up sociology. Uh, after a while because I wanted to learn about the world that I was moving around in and also being fascinated by different cultures. So my most memorable, I think, time abroad was, was the five years I spent in Istanbul, Turkey. And, and traveling around that area of the world. And what I realized is that there were parts of sociology, especially, I think, the systems theory and, and the systems idea of evolution mm -hmm. that I found matched so well with some of the, the oriental teachings, the, let's say the wisdom streams. But in fact, I think Western science was trying to look at it from a, a different perspective. So eventually I decided to, to come back and after a bout of teaching to really get into study of social systems, uh, consciousness, uh, human development, evolution, and all these streams, which more or less brings me back to where I am today. I mean, I, I love your, your writing style cuts like a knife. I just want to read the passage, the back passage of, of your book here, The Struggle for Your Mind. Within society, there exists a silent war. The battlefield is our everyday lives our education, our work, our leisure, our emotional and spiritual well-being, and our thinking and perceptions. Our very sense of reality is deliberately engineered to work against conscious evolution and preserve social norms. In short, we are all part of a war of consciousness, and the opportunity is at hand for us to win. Wow. Mm. Sounds good on paper, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what motivates you to write about this type of subject? Well, again, Xavier, I think it, it's the blessing or the cursed uh, element, the yin-yang, is that from a very early age, I always sensed that something wasn't quite the way it was, and that this thing that we call reality was not a set medium. So, I mean, I think that actually underlies all my, all my searching is trying to, to get at the core of that. And what's at the core of it is really what we try to understand as human consciousness. For me, everything goes back to human consciousness. The way that we perceive the world around us, our belief sets, really makes up the world that we inhabit. So... You know, if everyone around us believes something, we tend to fall into that. And it's when you look into it, in fact, it's so easy for conditioning, both social conditioning and mental conditioning, 
um, to take place. In fact, it's it's always taken place since um, I think since the earliest days of civilization. Once you have civilization, you have to have uh, a kind of consensus reality. And the more complex societies become, you then have the hierarchy of leaders, which then have to make sure that the, the masses um, kind of fit into their belief system. And so you have this thing called social engineering, to give it a modern term. It's right. always been around as, as far as back as the, I think, you know, it's kind of self-reflective consciousness. Um, and so really... It, it's it's a science, but it's also the basis for our reality set. So reality is more malleable than perhaps we've taken credit for. Um, although I think some of the, the new sciences coming out now with our understanding of, of the quantum sciences and the holographic universe uh, notion helps us to give us tools, vocabulary to understand how uh, flexible and malleable the reality set is. But, you know, Really, who controls how you think? Who controls uh, the input you put into your mind and the frames of consciousness will therefore have a great influence upon your reality. It's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you talk about, in your book, you talk about the illusion of freedom and how if a, pri if a prisoner never sees the bars, I mean, how can they know that they're in a prison? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a term I also like to use is smooth captivity, um, because I think our captivity these days is so smooth, and it's been engineered to be smooth, that we don't notice it, or we don't wish to notice it, because it's a smoother ride to stay in the consensus reality we have. And, um, you know, and so we don't wish to, we have everything around us, and we have you know, this is also part of how society has been, uh, let's say, developed. And you, if you wish to go back to Marxism, you could. But the idea is that people now can acquire the very things that once they produced. And so we have most material goods to keep us comfortable. And before the age of global information, that was more or less enough. I mean, there were pockets of protest, but... Um, it was enough to keep us into the system. I think what's happening now, and as I outlined in The Struggle for Your Mind, the because we're in such a, a moment, a bifurcation point of, of, con, you know, of contention, it's because we're now receiving so much more information, which is showing us the bars of our prison. And that is upsetting, um, let's say, the, the, the status quo of our societies. Um, because we're beginning to see beyond the smooth captivity. And, you know, that is, in one sense, uh, a tool for empowering uh, people individually, but it's also a tool for rocking the boat. And so I think uh, in the years to come, and, and possibly a dec in decades, this, um, this kind of melting pot of information, communication technologies, uh, global information technologies, uh, human empowerment, connectivity, communication, consciousness, it's all really going to boil over and no one knows where it's going at the moment. And that's why it's, it's exciting and also uh, unstable times. Yeah, wow. I mean, I, I ripped through this book. I loved reading it. And I just, I just felt like you were on point with everything that you had to say. 
Um, I mean, where where do you think? I mean, there there are so many systems of control. I mean, you talk about misinformation, debt, distraction via technology. I mean, how how wide and varied are the ways that we might not be in full control of our own minds, and what effect is it having our own on our own con- conscious evolution? Well, loaded question there. <laughs> it's well, it's it's everything that affects our minds. Um, you know, there's there's an old uh, Eastern phrase I picked up which says, you know, greed for doing good is still greed, which means that things which uh, we think are helping us or things which uh, may seem altruistic, such as uh, spiritual belief systems, may be those very systems which are still part of the problem. Um, you know, we see in in the past, I think the, it was quite uh, the sources of this control were much easier to spot. Uh, take an example, in earlier uh, societies, it was much more a visual kind of programming. For example, if uh, a, a, a citizen did something contrary to the monarchy, to the government, or, or to the nation, they were visibly punished. They could be tied to a post in a square, they could be put into, into chains, they could even be guillotined or hanged or executed publicly. And that gave everyone a warning to stay in their place and don't mess with the system. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you can't get away with that today. <laughs> you know, I'm sure some governments will probably like to put people to a, a poll or something. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you can't get away with it in our um, so-called democratic societies, obviously. So it's a much more, um, it's a much more smooth way of doing it. And we don't notice it. And it it's kind of like function creep. It creeps into all our all our methods and, and in everything from school to, to everything, our peers. Um, and even I think one of the problems we're having today I see around us is that one of the, uh, I think it can be quite dangerous, is spirituality itself. And I think this is a point which not everyone points at, is that there has been incredible commercialization of spiritual themes. Even if we if we mention the New Age movement, which was coming on the end of, of the great uh, I say emergence of, of transcendental technologies and, and uh, pathways that came into the West uh, post-Second World War, um, even they, I think, have become, in a sense, hijacked as well in, and commercialized. And in fact, a lot of these spiritual technologies today uh, are also used a way of kind of brain entrainment and and they are using a sense of cognitive science to try to get us to believe in certain in certain ways so in fact it's not it's not as clear cut about what affects us or not so in terms of the question you asked about conscious evolution i would say that it goes back to something very very fundamental, which is we have to trust our intuition. We have to trust, um, uh, if I may say so, Timothy Leary said that uh, we all have an inbuilt bullshit detector, which um, I think was his kind of uh, cheeky chappy way of saying that we have this inbuilt uh, conscience and intuition, right. which I, I think is coming through a lot more, especially in the younger generation today. I see it coming up because they're less... The younger generation are, are less easy to fool, I think, and they are questioning systems and authority more in a constructive way. 
Um, so I think we have to go back to ourselves um, really, really in a, in a quite a, a stark way and question everything that we believe and come in contact with um, and, and try to strip away a lot of, of um, the baggage which comes with living in a very dense, rich and overflowing informationally modern society. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very intriguing. I mean, in the, in the same book, Struggle for, the, for Your Mind, you talk about mechanisms in the brain that are emerging that allow neurogenetic evolution that will help us throw off these kinds of mental prison. I mean, what what is neurogenetic evolution? How does how does the mechanism work? And I mean, how how can we free ourselves? Another loaded question for you. It is, yeah. You like loaded questions. <laughs> um, well, I termed it neurogenetic evolution um, because I think. We are learning a lot more about human genetics uh, recently, and especially with our understanding of epigenetics. That is that previously uh, science told us that genetic uh, differentiation or, let's say, mutation occurred uh, over generations in a, in a larger span of time, biological evolution, you may call it. Um, with epigenetics, we are learning that uh, Genomes can actually be influenced and changed within a lifetime and intergenerational, which can also be passed on. And so the question is, what influences human genes? And I think when I looked into it, in fact, it, it mirrors a lot of the older wisdom traditions in that um, biophysics, recent biophysics has, has um, investigated how the biophotons are emitted by uh, our DNA and all our physical cells. And this forms uh, a field a, a, which acts like a quantum field throughout the body, which is a way of, of information, cellular information being passed simultaneously, like an informational field. And so this biophotonic field is also in resonance to other fields and influences, and such as, let's say, sounds, certain sound waves, which we can relate to the science of mantras and zikas and certain um, spiritual techniques. Also, uh, color as well. And so I mentioned, for example, there are places which have uh, specific color orientations, such as use of stained glass windows in churches and, and also the colors on, on, uh, in rooms. And so uh, sacred buildings have a certain, uh, you know, spatial structure and sacred genomics, which also can affect uh, vibrations in the atmosphere. So these things which we thought as, as perhaps being fringe sciences can have a very definite effect and impact upon uh, fields, electromagnetic fields, which are part of our DNA structure. So if one goes into meditation, you know, with, there's been lots of, uh, research on EEG brain scans about how we come into entrainment and synchronization of our brains. But there isn't yet the technology to look at how our DNA fields are being affected. But I do feel that these mechanics, and I call them, let's say, spiritual tools, certain forms of meditation, using sounds, using colors, which have been used for aeons in these wisdom traditions, I can have a marked effect upon our um I think genetic state. So there is a sense that we can come into um, what has been called metaprogramming. Um, 
Um, I think there is a sense, and this was touched upon in uh, in the America in the 60s with scientists like John Lilly, who, who worked with isolation tanks. Again, Timothy Leary looked at this and, and several others, which they called it metaprogramming. So I think there is a way that we can consciously try to work in programming the very structure, the very cellular and internal structure of the human body that can work towards, um, let's say, our opening up our own latent um, faculties and, and capacities, which um, really has not, it's not really been out in the mainstream much. Yeah, I mean, how would you, there's a subchapter in your book where you talk about decoding the Armageddon meme. I mean, why do you think this 2012 sort of, I mean, it, why is Armageddon and the obsession with zombies and vampires and the end of the world, why is that being fed into the mass unconscious mind? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the 2012 phenomenon, uh, that was quite a spectacle. And, you know, the day after, I think there was a lot of people sitting around thinking, well, what didn't happen? <laughs> nothing happened. Uh, yeah, nothing happened that we that was uh, in that meme, you know. Um, and I think, well, where it came from, of course, we know the origin of 2012, the main calendar. And I think that has an authentic base. But like many things that are out into the public sphere, it gets hijacked. And we do have this kind of end, end times uh, mentality or perhaps we have an end times weakness you know going back to biblical talk of of the apocalypse and it it depowers people and so what it does is that it also lets in uh, fear and fear is a great weakness it weak it weakens our electromagnetic field that's been verified it weakens our immune system which has been verified but also it allows in when we have a sense of fear, we need security. So obviously, when we don't feel we have it ourselves, we reach out to an outside authority. So it also puts us collectively at a kind of disadvantage. And so the 2012 Armageddon meme was really um, to disempower all these other tropes and memes which we're trying to struggle through about. After 2012, we'll be able to empower ourselves, etc., etc. It was a whole wave of disinformation, um, which would, I think, deliberately been put into, uh, I say, the public consciousness. So, of course, when it deflated and nothing was there, it kind of um, put a, a sword through the whole thing and just said, well, you know, it was all wrong. There's not going to be this this vibration to the fifth dimension. You're not going to be saved by people coming to, to get you off the planet or you're not going to evolve to a new human. And so... In a way, a lot of people felt kind of deflated and quite depressed. And when we're in that mode, we want to go back into security, the status quo, you know. Um, the story I give in the book um, about, um, you know, the weekend phenomenon, you know, about how we are allowed to go out at weekends and, and alcohol is legal and we have a great time and perhaps too good a time. You know, we, we get completely, um, you know, we have, we go wild often, often off our heads. And, and then when it comes to Monday morning, we're happy to go back to the status quo system because we've had a blowout, you know. And that was the same technique which was used, uh, for example, uh, on slave plantations. Um, I gave the example from one of the uh, texts from one of the uh, 
free slave writers. And he said that a lot of the slaves were given money that could only be used on the plantation uh, shops. That when they had time off, such as Christmas, the money was spent to buy booze, whiskey, liquor, and the slaves were allowed to have a blowout and get absolutely um, out of it for several days, so drunk that at the end of it, they, they were wanting to get back into work to get, get their heads together. And uh, that was just one example. I think it was Frederick, jo um, trying to think of, of the writer there, but um, that can be verified. And I think that is a weekend phenomenon that certain, uh, that certain substances uh, are not allowed in society because they actually stimulate the neurons, stimulate our experiences. And then we start to, we have a, a different reality perspective. And that isn't good for going back into the system. But other things like alcohol, which are um, in some ways more dangerous to the human biology and all the deaths we've had of alcohol over the years, they're allowed because they give us a blowout phenomenon. And afterwards, we want to go back into the system Monday morning. And so there are these things at play as well. Hmm. It's very, very intriguing. I mean, um, I mean, we're covering a lot here very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I just... I want to get into kind of winning the war and mm -hmm. you know you talk about there is nothing to fear and that I mean do you think that we will eventually win this this war I do I do Xavier and I don't really have a doubt about that and that for me is something which I instinctively feel in fact and that's why I often prefer to speak about this winning the war and out of all the books I've written the struggle for your mind is the really the only one that goes into the dark side of, of our manipulations and, and the technologies that control us. All my other work uh, actually examines the, the the I think the rise of human consciousness over the over the um, the the decades and the evolution of consciousness into the future. So I do think we're winning it because if you look um, again. 20th century looks like it's been uh, the, this, the century of the greatest warfare. But if we look at it in terms of the inner landscape, it's been a century with great exploration, innovation and experimentation of the human inner landscape. And, not, you know, we've had the rise of, let's say, um, transcendental technologies, uh, the rise of experimentation with with, with um with the inner landscape in whatever form that may take. We also have the tools to talk about it because before, let's say, psychoanalysis and Freud and Jung and, and, and Wilhelm Reich, we didn't have much language to talk about the inner world. We didn't have a subconscious. We didn't have an id or ego. Um, so now we've had this language, we've had a century of, of spiritualism, of um, we now have scientists talking about out-of-body experiences and verifying this. Um, we have esoteric subjects which would have belonged to the mystery schools before, now publicly available, the literature is available, people are talking about it. Like we have this conversation now, we can talk about consciousness in a way that wasn't available a few, you know, a few decades ago. Um, there are subjects we can talk about now which we could not even talk about 10 years ago. So I think the inner landscape of, of the human being has really uh, expanded tremendously. And I think this is a sign that there's a different shift in human evolution, uh, which we call conscious evolution. And so 
what I think is important now is that we are conscious that we can participate in our evolution as a species in our societies and have take more control of that instead of being at the whim of evolutionary forces. So now I think we're coming to a different playing field and this is what is going to be tricky is that the playing field now is known more or less by both sides. Those who are uh, let's say in control or authority of social systems mm -hmm. and ourselves the people you know and and technology is coming into that as well and which is going to be a major factor but now there's so much information out there so much experimentation sharing of processes coming together as groups uh, helping each other working with our peers experimenting and journeying together that I feel that there is a, a greater, let's say, weight coming over now to individual self-exploration, which wasn't there before. And we can win this. I mean, all of your books seem to kind of revolve around this. I mean, in Breaking the Spell, you talk about overcoming the social conditioning and this disconnection from the universe. I mean, what, I mean, what are the, some of the ways that you would say would be useful in helping someone free themselves to connect to life more? Well, the first thing really is to, you cannot really start until you start to be asking the right questions. And asking the questions, it really gets the ball rolling. As you say, we, we don't know we're in a prison uh, until we see the bars. So the first thing is to say that we realize that we are, in a reality set that is socially engineered. Now that may not be a bad thing, just as the ego is not a bad thing, uh, in its place, you know? We have to survive in this physical world. I don't, I don't support going into a cave and being a hermit. We're lifting this world, and so we need a certain amount of this conditioning around us. But it's being aware of what the conditioning is and when it's operating. Now we need to take a step back from that. And in fact, I think, uh, both in the end of Struggle for Your Mind and in another work, Breaking the Spell, you mentioned, I talk about some techniques such as stepping away, whereby um, we can learn to recognize what is distracting around us and to pull our mind back from that distraction. Now, one an analogy I give is, is the drowning person analogy. If, if a person is drowning in the ocean, the first uh, reaction we have is to go out there, swim out there, and try to save them. And this drowning person is like society. They're, they're trying to be distracting, and but if we go out there and we're not prepared, a drowning person will grab onto you, and because they're struggling, they'll pull you down with mm -hmm. it, naturally, mm -hmm. because yeah. they're struggling. You know, And I think the social systems are struggling, and you can see that, because they're trying to make so much noise to distractors, because they know that, you know, the we're seeing them for what they are. The emperor has no clothes. So they're making more noise. But if we go to where the noise is, if we go to where the drowning person is, they're likely to pull us down. Coast guards uh, say that, you know, unless you're trained, be careful of going out there. So I would say, careful of giving these, these events, these systems, your attention, um, because they're addictive and they will pull you in. We need amount of stepping back, pulling back our minds, pulling back our attention away from that, and be mindful of what information we receive. Information programs us. Do we want information that's uh, always negative, that brings us down, that pulls us in? What information channels are we using? 
let's use our instinct, let's use our, as Larry said, our bullshit detector and look for those channels of information that we feel resonate with us. Now, we have to be more discerning. I think for so long that we were co consumers, consumers of information because information was one way. The television threw stuff at us. Before that, the radio threw stuff at, at us. Now we can be proactive. Uh, information is not one way, it's, it's multiple. We can go out there, we can produce our own information. We're prosumers, not con consumers anymore. We produce information, and I think that we should take a much more active role about what we want to engage with, what we want to receive and allow into us, and, and learn to step away and distance ourselves from the rest. And, and I think we have to be more aware of this and aware of where our priorities lie. Because what we take in will, will be part of our programming, and we, we have a, a, an active role and a, and a responsibility to take care of that. Wow. Wow. I mean, I, I just feel your, your words cut as much as, you know, these on your book, in your book, as much as in this interview. And I, I love everything that you're saying. Um, do you feel as if, I mean, like you said, when you see a person drowning and they tend to kind of be in this fear state and they bring you down with them? I mean, do you feel like living a sort of solitary lifestyle is a cure for that? Um, well, I think everything everything should be taken in moderation. Anything in extreme is not good for you. If you have a headache, you take a penicillin, okay, yeah, an aspirin. But if you take 100 penicillins, you're not going to wake up. <laughs> so everything is going to be moderation. If you feel you need a moment of, of solitary peace, take it. I think... I think um, being alone and and, and um, having some solitariness is healthy. You know, we should not be afraid to be alone. Um, we should not be afraid of silence because the world is full of chatter. But I, I don't think that we should be solitary all our lives like a hermit. Um, we should learn to take responsibility to make the choice of when do we need something like being alone uh, and how much of it. Um, you know, as I say, being ext extreme of anything, whether it's good or bad, is, is, is not going to be uh, useful. And, um, you know, we should work out what, what we need. So what worked for someone else won't work for us. And also we should, we should um, understand who we need to speak to. Sometimes we may want to help someone, but at that moment we can't help them. Because, you know, they may be in a, in a, in a state where they're just not listening to us or they don't resonate and if we stay with them, we may feel our own energies being drained. So we have to be aware that some people, uh, what I mentioned in the book, they can become like psychic vampires, um, often not in a deliberate way. They may not mean it, but they may be sucking our energies because they're not in a, in a, in a proactive state yet or a state of realization. So, you know, we can help people to a degree and then say, OK, that's enough. I need to step back now. Uh, and maintain my own state, and you know they'll have to make some efforts to to come around to the information themselves. So, you know, we have to be aware of our own state and take care of ourselves at the same time. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the world and you look at the political landscape, I'm not sure if you're following what's happening here in the states. It's kind of absurd. I don't but, think um, you can miss it. <laughs> 
I mean, I, if if you just look at what's going on around us, it it really does seem like we're on the precipice of something else, something new. I'm not sure if it's the end of an era or the beginning of a new one. It seems more like the beginning of a new one. But I mean, what I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, how do you think? Where do you think we are in this phase of human history? I think we are at the beginning of of a new phase. Um, and in in these in these phase transitions, to use a, a term from complex sciences, um, there's always a, a disturbance of information um, because these two systems, old and the new, are clashing. Again, to give a, a visual example, if you throw a, a, a stone into a pond, you get ripples that go out. If you throw two stones in, the two circular ripples from the stones, when they meet each other, they have the interference; they clash. Those ripples break up. I think this is what's happening now. As a new system is coming in, both to human consciousness and into the social domain, uh, it's clashing with the old, and so we're having this disruption. But in fact, and if in fact, if you look at this, these dynamics, the dynamics of chaos or disruption produces energy, which is in fact necessary for bringing in the new system. Um, this is this is this this type of uh, chaotic systems actually plays out in social systems, in cellular biological systems as well, and it's, it's the basis of life. And this energy is required. Um, Xavier, I feel that our um, you know, descendants are going to look back at this time and look at the work we've been going through, the times we're going through, and they will perhaps look at this as being as important as the time that humanity moved from the flat earth to the round earth perspective, you know? Because so much is happening now, and it's one of the few times that we're going through, I think, a global civilizational disruption, not just an, uh, uh, an isolated one or, or, or an empiric one, belonging to empires. I feel that the age of empires is over now, despite what may look like in world affairs. Most systems are now global. Financial systems rely on global trade. You know, we have so many uh, social systems, trade systems, uh, communication systems that if you know if one goes down it all affects the other and so there's this rippling now what we may see in the political systems is that the political systems of this so-called uh, democracy um, are not are not functioning anymore I mean they, they had their role they're not functioning and so what we see on, on the television is like the magician's sleight of hand you create a distraction in one area so you don't see what's happening somewhere else so all this political fanfare and all the, you know, the Trumps and the Clintons of the world, um, you know, they're creating a lot of noise. Um, and I think they're trying to hide a broken system. And, and I think what, you know, what we need to do is really, instead of just being watching the, the debates or the, or the arguments, however you wish to call them, um, we should be looking at the, the people who are talking about, you know, what are better systems out there? And I see some of the, the conversations from the younger generation being very constructive about what are uh, perhaps better political systems, but we may have to wait a, a new generation for them to come in. Um, but I, I wouldn't take too much notice of the fanfare. Um, you know, as I say, you know, don't look at what a person says, you know, observe their actions. And that tells us a lot more. I mean, I'd like to talk a little bit about your book, Dawn of the Akashic Age. What motivated you to write that? 
Yeah, that book um, I wrote in collaboration uh, with my colleague Irvin Laszlo. And in fact, what came about was Irvin had written previously a book um, about 2012, right, um, about how there will be change coming around 2012, not on the on the meme or, or the Mayan calendar, it was, just, it was just a point to say systems will be changing um, because, you know, the new ways of thinking are coming in. So he approached me and said, would you like to write a book about how will systems be, how will the world be in 2020? And um, we said, yes, let's do it, but let's not use any, any year date, you know. We've had enough of 2012, let's forget 2020. Rather than going on a time-based thing, let's look at a theme-based. What changes can we have, see happening in the world um, around, you know, around this, this epoch? And Akasha is a term which Irvin had used before, and Akasha refers to the fifth field. The Hindu rishis um, of old, uh, of the Vedic time, in the Vedas talk about air, earth, water, fire as the four elements. And the fifth element was Akasha, they said. Akasha is what we would call the, the quantum collective field, the underlying field. And so we wanted to look at how this understanding through science uh, that we are part of a, uh, a quantumly entangled universe, that the world is entangled in so many ways in like a field uh, metaphor that what happens is going to occur to all around the world with that understanding as our base how can we see educational systems political systems financial systems uh, needing change in a, in a in a let's say a planetary civilization going through the birthing pangs and I do feel that's what was happening uh, I think I sense that we are as a as a global species, moving towards what may become, uh, for want of a better term, a planetary civilization. But how we get there is going to be a different matter. Because I, I don't, I'm not referencing the Borg uh, from Star Trek. I, I, I would abhor this kind of collective, uh, unitary mind society. But I think that we're going through towards a planetary society based on diversity, but based on a on a shared understanding of, of consciousness. Um, but how we get there is going to be the, the decades ahead for us and our generations to come to, to figure out. And that's going to be the great evolutionary um, challenge for our species. Yeah, man. Bang on. I love it. I, I love everything you have to say. I mean, it really seems like you're kind of one of those hidden authors that that people have to kind of look for and find. And I mean, now that I've kind of found your material, I'm just like soaking it up and mm -hmm. love it. Um, I want to talk about your book, Meeting Monroe, because it seems mm -hmm. like this book for you is the most powerful. That's what I got from that. Um, do you want me to kind of give a little passage that you write about or do you want to just get into it? Well, sure, give me a passage because, in fact, it's very hard for me to make, remember the book. It's okay. like I was there, but I wasn't, so please <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> and here's a, here's a small passage. It is difficult to clearly express what happened to me over the period of several weeks. It was both an intense and surreal experience. Even thinking about it now has me, ha has me at a loss to give any credible explanation. It is po probably best that I don't try to define or categorize what, in effect, was a series of startling and profound encounters. I have a feeling deep within that my meeting with the person 
in quotes, I came to know as Monroe was not an accident. I mean, wow, that's, it sounds so mysterious. I really want to know more. Yes, well, it's, you know, it's the, the book, which for me is a, uh, the hardest to talk about because, in fact, it's a book which I feel I didn't write. And all these other books we've been talking about are ideas that I'm, I'm uh, trying to articulate. With Monroe, it's the most personal book because it happened to me. And my conversations with this person that, I, that was known to me as Monroe and the ideas expressed were very powerful. Um, and the ideas are about more or less on the theme of ourselves as a species and our, and our evolutionary journey and our responsibility upon that. And I go back to that book many times because so many passages I don't remember because I, let's say, I, um, I put them out, I disseminated them, I, I took them down, I wrote them up and I put them out, but I feel like I, they just passed through me. But so many times in my writings uh, and um, my talks, I realized that, in fact, this is still a lot of the talk with Monroe is coming through me. It's embedded in me. Um, I, may, I'm prompt, I apologize for sounding vague, but I think there are times in our lives when we have powerful encounters and they don't come out immediately. And if, if we if we absorb them, I think things come out at the right time. We have to process them, but they come up, they become a part of us. Um, my own journey is I'm trying to understand how can we evolve consciously as a species, collectively and individually, and what that entails, and how can we articulate that, and where does human consciousness play out in that? And the more I think we, we tackle these issues, and articulate them, discuss them, share them, they impact our perceptive sets. They impact how we perceive our environment, our perspectives on the world, and the world starts to shift accordingly. You know, I think so much change can, can occur from the inside out, which means that we trigger it. If we take responsibility to think in a different way, to speak in a different way, to engage in life in a different way, then the the manner that our tools of perceiving the world around us start to shift and adjust according to our perspective. And I think that's part of maybe a quantum entangled universe or, or a uh, matrix universe, however we wish to call it, we are in a participatory relationship with the world around us. So our perceptive sets, our behavior, our thinking, that all is a part, nothing is isolated. So if you shift one, if you start to change your mental apparatus, um, then that has a knock-on effect with how we interact with the world around us. We have to start somewhere. It's beautiful. I love it. Um, you know, Kingsley, we're we're approaching the end here, man. If is there, you know, is there one single thing through your writing, through your experiences, through your research, that maybe someone who is listening to this show right now that you could kind of deliver a message to them? Is there something that you would kind of like to say? Well, I would say that um, if, if it was possible for me to have this journey, it's possible for anybody, you know? I came from a normal family in a small town in England, and I just had a sense that I need to investigate some things. And everybody has the latent capacity. Anybody, everybody can change. 
Anybody can start to evolve their thinking patterns. It's not down to any elitism. It's not, it's not um, you know, locked away. We're talking about the real democracy. Real democracy is not in politics. Real democracy is in the evolution and the spiritual realization of the self. And that's open to everybody. Everybody has the tools. And I would say, don't believe what I say, because belief is not a part of this. What we're talking about is understanding. Go away, do your homework, think about things for yourself, figure them out for yourself because everything works differently for each person. But if I can reach these thoughts, uh, anybody can. And uh, and best of luck. <laughs> I love it, man. Where can where can people find your work? Um, perhaps the easiest way is just to Google my name, Kingsley Dennis. Um, I think I was blessed with a unusual name which comes pretty high up on the search engine. Um, Google Kingsley Dennis. I have a website, uh, www.kingsleydennis.com. Um, I have a lot of information on there. I have a link to essays. If you look in the menu bar, I have maybe over 40 essays, all downloadable for free. Read them, do your browsing. Um, there are you know, PDFs to download. Um, seek out my books if you wish. And um, and enjoy all the material that I'm I, I'm happy to make available. Kingsley, thank you so much for being here, man. I really appreciate it. The book is called "Struggle: The Struggle for Your Mind." This is the human experience, and we are going to get out of here. Thank you, Xavier. My pleasure.